We started with, uh, with Revelation, the Trinity, and then God's revelation continues throughout sacred scripture as he draws his family together, as he, he draws people to himself. And then we talked about this story of salvation, that if you had to talk about the gospel in 90 seconds, you could use these five things. Creation, the fall, salvation, sanctification, this be made in holiness, and then the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we talked about Jesus last week. Uh, Deacon Alex talked about the Holy Spirit, which is poured out to continue to, to sanctify us, to make us holy. And now we get to the church, which is given still for this same process and the same uh, reality of us being made holy, of us being made saints. So this is the, the purpose of the church. So that's what our, our topic is today. The church helps us uh, to become saints, to be made holy. And so maybe let's just take like 30 seconds and just for yourself, actually maybe we'll do this as a, as a group. And you hear the word church, or let's say Catholic church, what's the first words that come to mind? Right? What's the first word you hear the Catholic church? What do we think of when we think of the Catholic church? Apostolic. Apostolic. The Eucharist? Universal? Anything else? Words? Just throw them out. There's not going to be any right or wrong answers unless you say unimportant. <laughs> the Pope, right? The Mass. Any other words? Throw them out. Okay. Priest. So a lot of the different hierarchy parts. The Pope. Church. All right. Uh, yeah, so that's just something to think. Um, there's so many different ways to approach the church and to describe the church. And one of the ways we're going to, you know, the creed seems like a great place to start. Every Sunday we say, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And we call these four things, one holy Catholic and apostolic, the four marks of the church. Not like my dad's name Mark and then you get this other guy named Mark or whatever, but the four marks of the church, like the four signs that the church is the church, is these, these four things. It's one, it's holy, it's Catholic, it's apostolic. So you can look at the church, though, in, in different ways because the church is not just us here on earth. And if anybody went through the, the Baltimore Catechism, you know that we've got the church triumphant. So that's all the, all the angels and saints in heaven. So we've got this, this great picture just shows the, the church in heaven. And then the church militant. So those are like the ones that are still duking it out, the military, the ones that are still fighting it out. That's us, the church militant. So you've got them. You've got us in this, this picture, you know, right alongside this altar. And then uh, the church suffering. So those would be the church in purgatory. Uh, so they're all still members of the church. Right? So our, our own idea of the church is not just here and now at this particular time in this particular place, but the saints are still part of the church. Right? The saints, it's not like, oh, I'm done with the church, I'm going to heaven, but they're actually still part of the church, which, which means they care for us. Right? And they're actually still, they, just as um, we care for each other in the church, that the saints still care for us. It's, it's, part, of, and, you know, um, it's part of patron saints. And um, this is actually, this gives a little, just these three things give a little roadmap of where we're going in the next three topics. So today we're talking about the church militant mostly. Next, next session is Mary and the saints. So that's the church triumphant. And then the session after that is the last things, death, judgment, heaven, hell, purgatory. And so that, you know, it'll be more than just the church suffering, but that'll, that'll be in there too. So we're all still part of the church. And 
Um, one of the uh, one of the great things, you know, I, and this will probably come up with Mary and the Saints, is this idea of a patron saint, is that the, the church, there have been some people that said, have asked, like, do the saints actually care what goes on in heaven or on earth? Like, you've been through the struggle, it's like, pff, I've been there, done that, now I'm on to bigger and better things in heaven. Um, but you think somebody like St. Teresa Lisieux on her deathbed, she says, uh, I will spend my eternity in heaven doing good on the earth so that she still cares about us, and the saints still do. And that's why we have patron saints, right? So they have particular things that they care about, and so they, they still care for those things. So, for example, last night, this is the example that first came to mind, um, St. Bonaventure is the patron saint of those with digestinal, digestive issues. So, bowel issues, St. Bonaventure is the patron saint. And you wonder, how do you become the patron saint of that? I don't know, maybe he had IBS, um, you know? Maybe, who knows all the different things he had. Um, but to think, like, he still cares about those issues, and he can say, yeah, I've been there before. And so, you know, you've, maybe the day before your colonoscopy, you gotta drink all that stuff, and you pray for the intercession of St. Bonaventure. Right? It's just kind of cool that they still care. So, that'll be more next time on saints. <laughs> Probably not so much on bowel issues. All right, so we're going to talk about the church militant most of this time. That's us here right now fighting things out. And there's all sorts of great images of, of the church. And even the, the word church, um, you know, in Latin it's ecclesia. And in Greek you got it there, it's ecclesia. I think my Greek's non-existent. But um, in even like in the study of the church, so that's a pers pers particular part of, or of, uh, of theology, the study of the church is ecclesiology. So ecclesia literally comes from this word that means called out. So the church is the people that God has called together. And you think about this in the Old Testament, like the people that God has called to be his own. So whether that's Abraham that gets called out by God, him and his family, to follow the Lord. Or you think about the Israelites in Egypt, that they're the people God calls out of Egypt to be particularly his own. So that's this, the ecclesia is the, um, the people that God has called to be his own. Our word church comes from the German word kirsch which literally means what belongs to God. So the church is, as you know, like just translating it, is the people that belong to God. So that's, that gives a sense of what the church is, that it's, it's what belongs to the Lord. And what, you know, ways we identify the church, you know, the, the liturgy. So as people say, you know, what do you think of when you think of the church? Well, I think of the Mass. I think of the Eucharist. Okay, well, that, that makes us the church. The church exists, though, like locally, so it exists in our own parish, it exists in our own homes, it exists in our diocese, but it also exists universally throughout the entire world and, and beyond. Does anybody know which, which diocese the moon belongs to? Oh goodness, really. <laughs> Lunar one? Huh? <laughs> what diocese the moon belongs to? The Diocese of Orlando, Florida, because there was a law, or there was a, a rule in the church as they were discovering the new world as to 
who should have the oversight over to these newly discovered lands. And the, the decision was, well, whatever place they leave, the, the exploration leaves from, it would belong to that diocese until, you know, like a new diocese is formed. So, you know, whatever Christopher Columbus sailed from Portugal, whatever diocese he left, it would belong to that diocese. The moon, that exploration took off from the Diocese of Orlando. And so the moon belongs to the, dice, the bishop of Orlando. And he, he has been negligent in his duties to go and visit his territory. I'll just say that. <laughs> Hopefully he doesn't watch this. Yeah, yeah. And so there's, there's great images throughout the, throughout the Bible of, of the church and ones that the church has reflected upon as to, like our own identity. And one of them is the, uh, the sheepfold. And so this picture of this, this kind of stone enclosure is I, it's an, a, one that exists currently in, um, in Ireland, I believe. And you think about that image that Jesus says, I am the gate. And you think, well, what does that mean that he's the gate? Because normally I think, like, I am the gate, like this wrought iron fence that, you know, just kind of opens. It's like, that's you, Jesus? You just kind of, like, spin like that? But... <laughs> Um, but you get this image of the sheep would all stay in there and the shepherd would sleep in that, in that gateway. So that's the church is the ones that Christ protects, is the ones that he calls together and he, he's kind of the, the way in and the way out. And then another image of, of God's people is a vineyard. So we got the image of the vineyard. It, there's a great um, image. Are, are the, um, the Old Testament, the prophets, always had this great image of uh, Israel being the, the vineyard of the Lord where he would pour forth his work, he would cultivate it, he would fertilize it, and that's where fruit would happen of people's lives in, this, in the grapes. And then even a building, right? This holy people of God built up as a building. And of course, maybe my favorite image is the body of Christ, right, where Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and then we are all members of his body, all having particular roles, right? Thumbs different from, from your appendix, although I guess your appendix isn't really necessary, so that's a bad image. Um, you know, so everybody has a different role, but Christ is the head that, that leads this church. So some great images of the church. But where does the church begin? Right? Where, does it, where does it start? And, what's, you know, and what's, what's the point of it? And you know, Jesus, as he, as he goes about, he preaches the kingdom of God. And people have noted, like, Jesus preaches the kingdom of God. He promises that the kingdom's going to be present, but we're left with the church. Right? Like, it actually, and so um, is there a difference between the two? Right? Between the kingdom of God that Jesus preaches, he prepares people for, and what we're left with is, is, a, is a church. And so it's actually a difference between Catholics and non-Catholics to say the kingdom of God, does it really exist now or is it just something purely spiritual? And, and we'll get to that. Um, but we would also say it's, it's visible. So the, the, ki- the church is the kingdom of God. One other um, image as Jesus talks about what belongs to him is this question about, you know, maybe this one in Matthew, you know, the, um, the start of it, people, Jesus is inside teaching and they say, hey, your, your mother, your brothers are outside. They want to they wanna talk to you. And Jesus gives this response. Who is my mo- mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, 
Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my heavenly father is my brother and sister and mother. So basically the church in another way is the family of God, right? It's the people that God calls together as his family. And sometimes you think, well, that's a beautiful thing because family life is so important and what a great image of the church and this relationship with, we have with each other. It's also a perfect thing because families aren't often perfect, right? And things go amiss and people have disagreements. And you ever been in the church long enough, you know that that's, that's not foreign. So it's a great image of the importance, but yet the, the challenges that it presents. So Jesus preaches the kingdom and, uh, and begins the church. And sometimes we look as, well, when, when did Christ begin the church? When did the church begin? And um, there's all sorts of things you could look at, right? Jesus preaching, right? He calls together the 12. That could be the start of the church. And then even the Last Supper, right? If the Eucharist is part and parcel and essential for the church, well, maybe it's the Last Supper where the church begins and he commissions the apostles to do this in memory of me. The early church talked about the church being born from the wounded side of Christ, right? Just as from Adam's side, Eve came forth, from Christ's side, the church comes forth. And then, you know, another one, we just celebrated this great feast of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit descends upon the church, and you see the, the guys going out like gangbusters to, um, as the church. And, you know, our answer would be, yeah, probably all of those are part of the birth of the church, and definitely by Pentecost, the church is born. But he, she, has her, she has her origin in all of those. So it comes from Jesus, who's the head of his church. And then the Holy Spirit equips and guides the church with hierarchical gifts. So that's like, you know, the hierarchy. There's particular gifts given to bishops, to priests, to the pope. Um, but also charismatic gifts, that all of us are given these, these gifts for, to serve the body, whether that's gifts of teaching, whether that's gifts of service, or, or of even just listening and the care, the concern, that the Holy Spirit equips and guides the church. So that's continually, right? And so this is for this whole process of sanctification. All right. There's a great quote in the, uh, in the catechism about the church being both visible but also spiritual. So the one mediator Christ establish and ever sustains here on earth his holy church, the community of faith, hope, and charity as a visible organization through which he communicates truth and grace to all men. The church is at the same time a society structured with hierarchical organs and the mystical body of Christ, the visible society and the spiritual community the earthly church, and the church endowed with heavenly riches. So think about the, what, it, what this paragraph in the catechism is trying to communicate. Is that some people would say, like, there's a, there's a difference between, and you hear this um, sometimes in non-Catholic circles, between, like, the big C church, right, like the, the invisible body of all believers, and the little C church, right? And the denomination is, is different, and then although there's differences, we're, we're all one body. Um, which the Catholic response is, like, that's a nice thought, that we're all united amongst all of these differences, yet there is, there is real division, right, in, uh, that exists. So the, the spiritual community and the visible are together. 
And this goes back to what we talked about with Jesus, right? Jesus is truly human, right? And he's truly God. And so you can't separate those and say, well, that he's, he's only divine or he's only human. These two things go hand in hand. The visible church, right? The, the, the parish structure and the, the, the teaching of the catechism and the spiritual work of the Holy Spirit existing in all of us. Like, the church is both spiritual and visible. And sometimes we get too far on either side, right? We can be all obsessed with uh, all the, the organization and the, the rituals and all of that um, and forget that actually the Holy Spirit animates it, right? We can, things can get a little, too, um, a little too human sometimes as we look at the church. And, um, but the, the catechism makes this point is everything's ordered to holiness. And this, this line, Mary... Uh, the church is Marian before she's Petrine. So Mary is this image of holiness, right? She's this image of sanctity and the, the goal of all of us becoming disciples. Peter is the image of the structure of the church, right? He's the first leader. So that the, the, the goal of holiness comes before the structure. And actually the structure, the, the Peter's office and the, the leadership is to serve everybody to become a saint. Right? So uh, it's not the church for the sake of the church. It's actually all ordered to all of us becoming a saint. So that actually means we need this. We need the church because if we try to lone ranger it on our own, we're, um, well, that doesn't work. And that's why Christ gave us the church. So any questions thus far? Comments? No? Okay, so that kind of sets up the, the church as this... Um, you know, coming from Christ and, and the mission given in some of these images. And so we're going we're gonna to run through these four marks of the church, right? The church is one, the church is holy, the church is Catholic, and it's apostolic. So the church is one. Um, this uh, long quote here from John chapter 17 is, is the, the prayer that Jesus makes during the Last Supper to his Father. So this is his prayer that he makes. And now I will no, no longer be in the world, but they are in the world, while I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one just as we are, so that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, and that the world may believe that you sent me. And I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one, as we are one. So I underline all those times. Actually, I missed one right, right there. Uh, that Jesus prays that they may be one. And that's, that's always his goal, right? He, he wants his family to be united as one. And if we're talking about this as a family, you can picture this. Uh, you know, God's really a father. And you could imagine this, anybody whose parents are, well, everybody grew up in a family, that you know, if you're having Thanksgiving dinner and aunt so-and-so doesn't want to come because cousin so-and-so is there and so they're actually having two different Thanksgiving meals, that's like a heartbreak for grandma and grandpa, right? When there's like people can't get together on the most important days, that's got to break a parent's heart. And you can imagine God the Father the same way, like celebrating Easter Sunday. This is the most important day. The son Jesus rose from the dead and people are divided. So I, I think this, this desire for unity, the, uh, 
that Jesus prays for is, is really important for everybody to be gathered. And, uh, of course, God's got a whole plan for this. Um, and even part of that plan is, is this picture. So this, this picture is the apostles preaching at Pentecost. So we just celebrated this. The Holy Spirit descends upon them, and they go out, and they start preaching. And all the people that are there for the Feast of Pentecost, the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, are speaking different languages. But when the apostles start talking, they each hear them in their own tongues. They hear them in their own language, which is an undoing of something. The Tower of Babel. You know, in the story of the Old Testament, they build this Tower of Babel, up, trying to reach God in their pride. The thing demolishes, and then they start babbling to each other, and they can't understand each other. So there's this division in their pride in the Old Testament, and what does the Holy Spirit do? He undoes that so that people can begin to be united and speak to each other. So, um, so right from the beginning, the church is supposed to gather all people together. So the church is one. And there's, uh, there's, there's, of course, when we say the church is one, it doesn't mean that everybody is a carbon copy of everybody else. But that there can be unity in diversity, right? And even, even us in the room, although we all grew up with, in this great state of Ohio, there's, I think everybody probably did as I look around, although I don't know everybody's exact story, um, that, uh, that there's a diversity just amongst us, even our, our different gifts, but even the different cultures that we come from or the different cultures that the church exists in, there's a great unity even amidst the diversity. Um, even ways of life or even different offices, right? You and I live the Catholic life in a different way, but yet there's a unity in things. So what is it that unites us? Well, unity in the faith, right? We've got this catechism of the Catholic Church. We've got sacred scripture. We're all united in the faith that we profess. And the worship and the sacraments, too. So the, the Eucharist, the Mass, unites us. It's why, you know, I, I've been to, to Mass in different languages, and it's like, I, don't, I, I can't understand the words they're saying, and yet I know what's happening. Right? And I, hopefully, maybe we all get that experience at least once in our life. Um, and then there's a unity in the apostolic succession. Right? So in this, um, the... the, the office of bishops that's been passed down, and we'll get to this with the church being apostolic. Um, yeah, that gets passed down through the, through the bishops. So there's unity amongst all of this. It's why you can go to a, you know, you can go to a church in Uganda, or you can go to a church in Spain, and, you know, it's still the Catholic Church. It's great unity throughout the world. But there's, there's wounds to this. Right? There's wounds to this unity, and there's different, different kind of kinds of wounds. So heresy is one of these wounds, and it's, it's a doctrinal thing. So let's say I get up here and I start speaking against the Immaculate Conception. I say, Mary really wasn't immaculately conceived. She was a sinner like all of us, blah, blah, blah. That's heresy, right? That's doctrinal um, imperfection. And so, you know, if that starts happening, write the bishop, get me censored, and, uh, and I'll do prayer and penance for my own conversion. And do that for me, too. Let's hope it doesn't happen. All right, heresy is doctrinal. A schism is leadership, right, of, of saying I'm no longer going to be under the pope or under the bishop. Right? And this is, we think, like, that's a crazy thing. Who's just going to say we're not going to be part of that? Well, 
I've had people suggest schism, say, Father, we don't like this beacons of light business, right? Uh, you're a priest. We still want to be Catholic. Let's still believe everything, the Catholic Church, but there's an old church out in the country that we could purchase, and we could still have the sacraments. We could still have our faith. We just don't have to worry about what this bishop is doing. That is called a schism, right? And, and people have done this. You know, I don't think anybody's doing this with the beacons of light that I've heard of yet. Um, but people, you know, definitely kind of people have kind of wondered about that. Um, yeah, so that's, that's what a schism is, is a refusal, refusal, refusal of the leadership. There's always a whole lot of pride in that. That's uh, it's never great. And then apostasy is a, is a total refusal of the Christian faith. So to say, um, you know, a lot of times this happens, people will leave baptized, raised Catholic, and then become Muslim, or probably more today would be an atheist. So oftentimes when we're thinking about this division, what we, uh, what we here in the United States think about is the Protestant Reformation, because that's where, that's where kind of all of our, our Lutheran, our Methodists, our, our um, Presbyterian, all, Baptists, all of them kind of come from that branch. But division in the church, and, and like real serious one, happens before that. And so this map that's up here is from the year 1054. So if you know your, uh, our, our world history, so eventually at one point Constantine decides to move the seat of the Roman Empire to his new city, Constantinople. Like, what sort of guy would name a capital city after himself? Washington, D.C. Uh, I don't think George Washington named it after himself. They did it in his honor, but funny nonetheless. Um, so they move. And then, so the, the Roman Empire sort of divides east and west. And the culture begins to divide. And they're speaking Greek over in the purple area in the east. And they're speaking Latin in the west. And so there's this division that comes up politically. But then it also exists in the church. And these political things, and you could go on to the whole who, what, and why this happened. Um, at one point in 1054, the Bishop of Rome, right, the Pope, excommunicated the patriarch, the Bishop of Constantinople, and he returns the favor, right? They excommunicate each other, and this is what we call the East-West Schism, right? 1054, the Catholic Church has this huge break um, between the East and the West, and this is where we get orthodoxy. So if you've heard of a Greek orthodox, so here's, here's Greece, or Ukrainian orthodox up that, uh, up that way. Um, so this is the division between the Catholics and the Orthodox. Huge, di huge um, division. Um, and uh, so that would, be, that would be a schism, right? A refusal of the leadership of the Pope. And great strides have been made um, to, to kind of bring these, to dialogue, to come back together. And in the 16 and 1700s, there was a number of, there's like parishes and local regions that said, we're supposed to be in union with Rome, right? So there'd be parishes, whole, whole groups in the Ukraine, for example, or in Lebanon that would say, hey, we've got to come back to union with Rome. And so if you've heard of an Eastern Catholic church, that would be a church that was Orthodox, and then 16, 17, sometimes the 1800s, came back into the union with Rome. So they're 
Eastern Catholic now. So they still celebrate Mass and their, their, or the Divine Liturgy, they would call it, in the way that they had for all those years, not the Roman Rite. That's what we celebrate, even if it's in different languages. But they would celebrate the, um, you know, the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. Uh, but they would be Eastern Catholic. Is that making any sense whatsoever? So they get, uh, and there's a whole lot, right? Like, um, so in, let's say in Ukraine right now, there's Eastern Orthodox, right? So they would not be in union with Rome. And then there's, there's Ukrainian Orthodox, and then Ukrainian Catholics would be in union with, uh, with the Church of Rome. And then actually things get really complicated in Ukraine right now because, um, because the Orthodox Archbishop Patriarch of Moscow is basically blessing the war. And they're like, we don't want to have any part with you in Moscow. So, uh, so they're like splitting off from the Moscow Patriarch. And it's, it's, a, it's a nuts thing. Sad, yeah. You see the division. Um, yeah, so, so our Catholic Church, right, we, we think of the Roman Catholic Church, we're the Latin rite, all of, our, all of our rites, our sacraments are originally in the Latin language and then they get translated into the vernacular, into our common language. But, so for example, some of these other ones would be different. Um, I got a little chart here, I don't know if this is easy to see. It's not easy to see, it's too big. <clears throat> so. Um, th so there's different rites, right? And these colors, yeah, it's tiny. I wonder if I can blow it up. Oh, whoa, technology. All right, so, so we've got the Catholic Church. And then the liturgy gets celebrated in all, all of these different ways. So we got on the far right, the Latin ritual family. So that's like Roman Catholics. And then the Byzantine, so that, that whole, the Byzantine rite of the church is a, uh, a specific rite. And then there's all these different um, Catholic churches that have like their own structure and their own patriarch that, um, that use these. So like the Greek Byzantine church, the Bulgarian Byzantine church, the Hungarian, uh, the Ukrainian church is down at the bottom of that list. So they all celebrate the liturgy the same way, but they're, they're different jurisdictions. And so there's all of these. So um, the Antiochian ritual family, those are probably the closest to the, the Roman mass. So there's a Marianite Catholic church down in, uh, down in Dayton. There's also, um, let's see, in, uh, let's see, also in Dayton is, what is that? Um, I believe it's a Ruthenian. So they celebrate the Byzantine liturgy in the Ruthenian, I think, I could be wrong, at the Wright State University campus. So the, uh, the Eastern Catholics in the Dayton area gather at the Wright State campus chapel every Saturday evening for the Divine Liturgy. Uh, yeah, so you can go. If you ever want to go, I highly recommend not sitting in the front row, right? If you want to go, sit in the back and watch other people. And you think, what, I'm Catholic? Well. The reception of Holy Communion is just one of those things you're going to want to watch the person in front of you. So I don't know everything about all these different Eastern rites, but I know in some of them, uh, the way they receive Holy Communion is they'll put the precious blood on the spoon, put a piece of the body of Christ, tip your head back, open your mouth, and the pour, they'll pour the body and blood of Christ into your mouth. Um, others, you receive the blood of Christ through a straw, 
like a gold straw, not like a bendy straw that you get from Taco Bell. Um, yeah, so you're more than welcome to go. It counts for your Sunday obligation to go to an Eastern Catholic church. Uh, it's probably worth doing at some point in your life. Take a road trip there. Yeah, yeah. So, <coughs> unity in diversity, right? Diverse expressions of the church, but yet the catechism's all the same, the scriptures are the same, the bishops get together, and actually have their own bishops, right? So, um, that Maronite church, at, well, so the, the, like the Maronite, so they are, let's see, right here, they're like Lebanon is where they originally, is where they're originally from. So here's, here's the Maronites. The Maronites are Lebanese Catholics. And so like the, Lebanese, the Maronite priest, the one in Dayton grew up in the States. The one in Cincinnati grew up in Lebanon and came over to serve the, the people here. Um, where was I going with this? Oh, the bishop of this area of the Maronite Catholics, I believe, is out of Los Angeles. So they, because there's so fewer, so, so fewer, so many fewer, so few of them, their dioceses or eparchies, as they call them, are bigger, right? So if you want a fun story, so there, um, there's a young man who was baptized Maronite Catholic up in Detroit. Right, these places where you have a lot of different immigrants, there's a lot more of these different parishes um, around here, you know, um, that's not as, not as many Eastern, Eastern uh, immigrants, e immigrants from Eastern Europe. So anyways, so he was baptized Maronite Catholic. When he was a young man, uh, like a child, his family moved to Wapakoneta. And so he grew up going to Mass in the Latin Rite Church, served Mass at St. Joseph and eventually uh, got engaged to a young woman who was not Catholic, who was a, a baptized Protestant. So, uh, he wanted to get married in the Latin rite because that's all he knew growing up. And um, so he said, how do, how do I do that? I said, I don't know. Uh, let me find out. So what happened was, um, so in the, the, like if I have a Roman Catholic and a um, a, a baptized, let's say, like Baptist. I can give them permission to, to get married, and every deacon can, every priest can in our diocese to get married. So for this young man, I, I don't have that permission. So actually, what had to happen was I wrote a letter that went to our diocese that got forwarded to the Maronite bishop in the area who gave him two permissions. One, to get married in the, uh, to get married in the Roman rites, because he's not a Roman Catholic, he's a Maronite Catholic, and two, for him to marry a, a, a baptized non-Catholic. So he got that permission, that's sweet. The letter came back, and then once we got that approval, the letter had to go to the, the Pope's ambassador to the United States, the nuncio, who gave me permission to use the Roman rite for somebody who's not Roman. You think, that's a bit convoluted, isn't it? Uh, there's reasons for all of that. Part of it is um, these different, especially in the United States, right? These different, um, they want to keep their heritage of the Ukrainian Catholic Church and the, the Maronites. So they don't kind of willy-nilly just say it, it doesn't matter. Because for them, this is, this is part of their heritage for, for thousands and thousands of years. So um, 
Yeah, so if there's one nearby, right, they always ask him to, if you're baptized Maronite, to be Maronite. But this, this guy hadn't for years. So that's a convoluted story, but kind of fun in this Catholic church that we exist in. I found the whole thing fun and really, really fascinating and interesting. Um, so, all right, so the church is one. But of course, there are these divisions that exist in the church. And that actually becomes part of our responsibility to work towards unity. And you think, well, how do we do that? In some ways, that just means our common fidelity and our common conversion, right? Whether it's our friends to, to always purify our hearts, to make sure our differences that we have with other Christians are not based in pride, right? Are not based in our own arrogance or self-centeredness or whatever it may be. And to look at those things that we can do together, right? To pray together. To pray the Our Father together is a, a beautiful thing. Um, there's one big moment with the, the uh, patriarch of Constantinople. You know the 1054, there was this big old excommunication. Well, his successor and Pope Benedict met and, uh, and they, you know, they wanted to pray together. And so they, they recited the, the Nicene Creed in Greek together, which was, you know, Pope Benedict's one of the few people in the world that could just do that off the cuff. Um, but, and even to think this fraternal knowledge of each other, right? To know, you know, to be able to go out with our neighbor who's not Catholic and say, okay, tell me a little bit. And let me, let's talk about these, these things, these differences. And then even collaboration. Think, what are those things that we can do together? Serving the poor, right? Our communities are great about like, hey, there's hungry people here. Let's just feed the hungry. Or there's, there's, a, there's a natural disaster that happened. Let's all work together to alleviate this suffering. So... So this, this goal to work towards, towards unity. All right, so the church is one. The church is also holy. And there's this great quote from Ephesians 5 that we have here. And if you know Ephesians 5, it's kind of those ones that some people really don't like to hear because it has that uh, husbands love your wives, wives be subordinate to your husbands, and people kind of like don't like that. Um, but there's this great, beautiful image that uh, St. Paul says, as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her to sanctify her, cleansing her by the bath of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Jesus gives his life for the church, just as a husband and wife give their lives for each other. And the goal is so that she may be without spot or wrinkle, and that she may be holy and without blemish. So Jesus gives himself to the church so that we may be holy, to sanctify her. So the church is given all that she needs to become holy. Right? And that's important for us to realize because all of us are called to be saints. And sometimes, I know in my own life, if I think, if this was different, it would be much easier for me to become a saint. Or if this, this, and this was different in my life, if I could just figure out how to pray better, or if I could, you know, this person wasn't annoying me, or whatever it would, may be, or, you know, if the bishop would do something different, then my life to being a saint would be easier. And Jesus gives everything that we need to become a saint in our, in our own life. So uh, I guess I can't make those excuses. There's a great book here. This is the, the cover of a great book by Brant Petrie called Jesus the Bridegroom that basically tries to look at all of the Catholic faith as Christ giving himself for the church, right? That he's the, there's this, 
the, the Catholic Church is this love story between uh, a husband, Christ, and his bride, the church. So it's a beautiful book. Christmas book. Yes. We'll see. Some of the some of the books retail price is $15. The Christmas books are normally like $1.50. So put it on your Christmas list for your husband or your wife. Put it in the chapels. Put it in the chapels. All right. So the church is holy and her members are on this journey towards holiness. And Jesus says, "Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." So there's this great call for all of us to be holy, to be a saint. Yet, we're not all saints, right? The very start of Mass always begins with, let us acknowledge our sins. And so we see this, the church is holy, and sometimes we can get really despairing and say, yeah, that's an aspiration, that's not happening, right? We can, you know, if you, you stick around long enough, you, you get people, or you get just wounds, and you hear people that, that you know, do all sorts of things, right? Whether that means that was the summer of 2018 when all that stuff came out about the former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick or priests doing things they shouldn't have or school principals, you know, the list goes on and on. And so we kind of know the people of the church aren't perfect. But where does the holiness of the church come? It's not the sum total of all of us. It's Christ's work, right? So the church is holy because Jesus Christ is her head and the Holy Spirit animates her. The church isn't holy because you and I are perfect. The church is holy because of what Jesus does and what Jesus offers. It's not because each and every one of us is perfect. Now that doesn't mean we just kind of throw up our hands and say, holiness is Jesus' problem, not my problem. Well, we all have this, this journey to become a saint. And even some of the... Um, the, the church's path towards holiness is recognized in the saints. That says it's possible for the church to live this incredible life of holiness because, you know, the great saints and all the saints, everybody in heaven has done this before. So we can get really discouraged about this. You know, you're, um, I, I have a, uh, a family member who just entered the church recently and she's all just so excited and um, <clears throat> and uh, she was getting ready to volunteer for vacation Bible school at her parish and then comes back, well, you need a background check. You have to go through this. You have to go through that. And, you know, people aren't the most charitable sometimes and they think you should be able to read their minds. And, uh, and sh you know, there's some discouragement that, that sneaks in. Um, but I, I know the devil really loves to discourage. It's one of his, his great tactics is to discourage people. And so, um, you know... It's all part of it, right? That this is the family of God. Called to be holy and working towards holiness, not, not done. But, you know, we do, I think we have this general sense that the church should live a higher standard than the, the, rest, of the, the rest of the world because Christ is the head. So, um, so there are imperfections just as there are in a school system or in our government or in any business or in any volunteer organization, you know, the YMCA, but yet... Um, we're given the grace of the sacraments, so that, that should count, that should change things. All right, so the church is holy, because Christ is holy. All right, the church is Catholic. The word Catholic means universal. So the Catholic church is the universal church, the one that goes out throughout the entire, entire world. 
And that comes from the call of Jesus. Right? Jesus, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, says, Go baptize all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I can see people looking at maps. I'm so proud of you, loving maps. <laughs> you know I love maps. This one is like, is it the most necessary thing for this? I don't know. Maybe there could be a better one. But it breaks down the entire United States into counties. And then the dark blue are counties that are over 50% Catholic. The kind of like teal color is those that are over, are 25 to 50% Catholic. And then this kind of like aqua green are those that are 10 to 25% Catholic. And then the real light blue is, uh, uh, are, wait, no, the light blue is 10 to 25, and like the teal green is uh, 0.1 to 10%. So the church goes out to the world, and, uh, and she settles in different places. I also thought this was great, because you, you can see Mercer County sticking out in Ohio right here. And then right next to it, Shelby and Anglaise County, with the 25 to 50% Catholic. <clears throat> Do I, oh, you want to go bigger. Yes, that's as big as it goes. I know Ohio is what you want, huh? But it is interesting, like, where Catholics have settled, uh, you know, and a lot of immigrants. So you think about, actually, this area right here, there's a lot of Belgian Catholics that settled in the, the Lake Michigan area of northern Wisconsin. Um, you got all the Irish that came to Boston. Um, Let's see, what else? Some odd place down, you know, that's the county that St. Minorit is in southern Indiana. Yeah. The French come into New Orleans. And then, of course, Hispanic immigrants along the Mexican border. That's that many in southern California. Do what? That's that many in southern California. Yeah. 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 You know, the real, I'm curious about this one right here in Alaska. What's going on in that county that over half of them are Catholic? Who knows? Could be 50 people and you got 30 Catholics. Yeah, that could. <clears throat> oh, could be. So the point is the church is supposed to go out, right? And she can exist in every culture. The United States is a great example because there's all sorts of different people in the United States, all sorts of different immigrant communities, um, but the churches exist in so many different places, right? You could be in an underground church surviving from a bombardment in Ukraine, you could be hiding from the government in China, although you could be in a great cathedral in France. So um, the church is Catholic. And then this universal Catholic church, right, spread throughout the world, is then broken down into particular churches. This is what I love about the the, the Catholic Church, there's a bit of like gumption to say, we're going to take the whole world and we're going to divide it into our territories. And then we're going to divide, you know, into dioceses. And then we're, those dioceses, that's not particular enough. So we're going to then divide all of those up into parishes. Right? So there's this, I, I think, a, a bit of, I don't know if holy arrogance is the right term or just the sense of like, we are taking responsibility for the whole world and the moon. So uh, we're going divide to this, divide this up. So even locally, um, we have all of our, uh, our great state of Ohio divided up into, into dioceses. So we get these, uh, you know, the Ohio, we've got the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, us, you know, we're up here in Auglaise and Shelby counties. 
get the Diocese of Columbus takes the southern central part. The Diocese of Steubenville's got the Ohio River. And then directly above that's the Diocese of Youngstown in the northeast corner. Then you got Cleveland and uh, Toledo. So all divided into dioceses. And then into parishes. So you get our, our parish boundary map there uh, next to it, which is, you know, it's fun. So the whole world is divided like this, which is, which is pretty sweet. Um, and is one of the many things I love about the Catholic Church. Matt nerd. All right. So we get this question about, okay, if the church exists throughout all the world, who belongs to the church? And the first thing you start with is everybody's called to. Right? There's, there's nobody that God says, I don't, I don't want to give you the Eucharist, right? Or I don't want you to know the forgiveness of mercy in the sacrament of reconciliation. Or I don't want to um, give you whatever, all the good gifts that Christ has given the church. He wants to gather everybody in there. So all people are called, all people are invited into this great church to be nourished with the sacred scriptures. And then those who are um, baptized and formally enter the church are those um, who accept right this, the teachings the church is the means of grace and the sacramental sacramental life and then there would be uh, what we'd call imperfect levels of communion with the church so let's say all baptized people right we share something in common with them we share some unity with everybody who's been baptized and then we would actually share probably, a, we would share a deeper unity with all of those Orthodox Catholics that receive the body and blood of Christ, who have an apostolic succession of bishops. So there's different levels of, of unity with those things that we, uh, that we share. The fathers of the church um, often use this phrase at the bottom, outside the church there is no salvation, which sometimes makes like, people get a little like cringy. But like on a positive note, it means that all salvation comes through Christ and his church. So the church puts together the Bible. So every church that uses the sacred scriptures and recognizes those in some ways is indebted to, to the Catholic church. Baptism was first practiced by the Catholic church throughout the world. And so all those that baptize, right, there, there's a, indebted to that. So everything comes through Christ and his church salvation. But this gives us a great like missionary impulse, right? To go out and to gather God's family together, to gather his flock back, back into unity. I love this picture though. It's Christ's cross and it's like a, a, a visible representation of I am the vine and you are the branches as these vine branches going out from the wood of the cross and gathering people, right? So it's everything flowing, everything being united in Christ's cross and uh, us being part of that. So it's, it's just a really, really beautiful mosaic there. All right, so the church is Catholic, right? She's universal. She exists throughout the entire world, embracing all sorts of cultures and places. Then the church is apostolic. So this means a couple, a couple different things that the church is apostolic. One, she's built on the, the faith of the apostles, right? The foundation that the apostles laid in their faith. But then she's always taught by the teaching of the apostles. And you, you get this uh, from the Acts of the Apostles at the very start. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to the communal life, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. 
So we've got the foundation the apostles laid in the faith, those first 12 that Christ calls. And then we have the teachings that they did. And then those two things kind of come together in the successors of the apostles. So we're continually taught by the bishops who are the successors to the apostles. And this, this picture is great. So it's, uh, it's a, all a mosaic of the 12 apostles worshiping Jesus in the Eucharist. It's down at our seminary in Cincinnati. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So, all right, the church is apostolic. And this comes from Jesus himself. Right? Jesus desires, he calls these 12. So he, the church and the apostles is not some like coincidental thing or the fact that um, the apostles are like, all right, this Jesus guy did this thing. We need, uh, we need somebody to kind of be a CEO. And then we need some middle managers of bishops, you know, of apostles. And then we've got everybody else, right? Like the structure that Christ gives to his church is by his design. And you see this um, in him selecting the 12. But then when Judas goes off and, and kills himself, they realize that another must take his place, right? So that it's not just like, well, now we have 11, we're just stuck with 11. But actually, the, the office of an apostle continues when Matthias is selected. So we got Matthias, Matthias over there holding his ax. <clears throat> and the, the apostles are sent out as these, these chief, these shepherds in union with, uh, with Christ and animated by the Holy Spirit. And get this great line of their, of their mission from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. But how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone to preach? And how can people preach unless they are sent? So it's this like sending the Lord, sending out his people. And the apostles end up in different parts of the world. And so St. James dies in Spain. St. Thomas makes his way to India. Right? And there's those first bishops going out to the world. I, I, um, Peter starts by going to, to Antioch, and then, of course, he goes, goes to Rome. So we get these apostolic foundations that the Lord founds this, this group of, of first leaders, the and their, their teachers also, which has happened here. But one of them is, uh, is even set apart. Peter, of course, is, is the first pope. So this is all part of right, Jesus' intention. And um, in Matthew chapter 16, there's this whole discussion. Jesus asks, uh, who do you say that I am? Some say Elijah, some say the prophet, some say um, John the Baptist. But who do you say that I am? And Jesus give, or Peter gives this great answer. You, you are uh, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, and so I say to you, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So basically giving Peter a certain sense of primacy, right? And whatever his keys, right? He's given him the keys, which, you know, for anybody, like even a parent, right? Your kid turns 16 and you hand him the keys, you're handing him something really important, right? You're giving the keys to that car. They're basically your allowing them to be the steward of that car. Um, and you think, okay, Jesus using this image of keys is not a coincidence, right? Jesus doesn't just do things kind of coincidentally. There's a, a scene in the Old Testament where 
in the, the kingdom, there's a king, and then uh, his chief steward isn't doing a good job. So he's going to have Eliakim take over his job of like his number two, running the day-to-day -day operations of the kingdom. So this is from the prophet Isaiah. On that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe, gird him with your sash, confer on him your authority. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one will shut. What he shuts, no one will open. So you see, like, when Jesus says these words in giving Peter the keys to the kingdom of the heaven, it's not just a coincidence, it's not just a nice thing. He's actually fulfilling something in the Old Testament where there was a king, and then the king had a chief steward who was in charge of the keys. Jesus starts his new kingdom. He's the king, and he hands over his keys to his chief steward, the pope, who will be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who we call the Holy Father, right? So the church has a, has a pope for that reason, because Jesus willed it. And then we'll, uh, we'll get to the bishops and stuff, bishops, priests, and, and deacons when we talk about holy orders, but maybe just one to talk about is cardinals. Fun fact, the explorers come to the United States, and they find these red birds flapping around, and they say, hey, those kind of have similar, similar colors to the cardinals back in Rome. Let's call those birds cardinals. So the birds were named after the people, not the other way around. So uh, cardo in Latin is the word for a hinge. So the cardinals are the ones who the, the pope hinges upon. So the birds got the name after the clergy, not the other way around. Fun fact. Um, and then the baseball team got the name after the bird, who got the name after the church people. So, anyways. So, cardinals, they're senior members of the clergy. They remain either priests or bishops. And they help the pope, right, in advising the pope in different matters. But their most important um, responsibility is to elect a new pope during a conclave. So, the pope dies, or as Benedict did, he resigns, and then the cardinals gather to, uh, to elect a new one. And only those who are under 80 are able to elect a new pope, and their voting number is limited to 120. John Paul II limited to 120. Um, <clears throat> and so many of them, like their day-to-day -day life, is to lead dioceses or archdioceses throughout the world, or to lead a dicastery in the Vatican. So um, the Vatican, maybe in an analogy, would be structured like uh, our US government, where there's a, you know, you've got a, a secretary of transportation, there's a secretary of the economy, there's an attorney general, there's a secretary of defense, and they're all led by, you know, cabinet members. And in the church, there's something similar. So there's a dicastery of the doctrine of the faith responsible for authentic teaching. There's a cardinal in charge of that. There's one of divine worship and the sacraments. There's a cardinal in charge of that. There's one in charge of bishops, cardinal in charge. So, uh, a lot of the card are some of the cardinals lead all those different dicasteries. So, yeah. And then we're gonna we're gonna finish up with the laity. So, which is everybody here's role, right? And there's a um, and like what's the role of the laity? And um, 
the Second Vatican Council's document on the church, and they had a separate document on the laity, has beautiful reflections on the, the laity and the role of the lay members of Christ's faithful. And in, I want to say it was the early 80s, John Paul II called a synod of the church to say, hey, let's, let's reflect on this even more. And what came out of that synod is this document uh, entitled the lay, Christ, the lay Christian Faithful, I think. And it is one of the most beautiful documents that's ever been, that's come out uh, recently. And one of John Paul II's biographers said, if the church was ever fully able to live this vision of the laity, it would revolutionize the world and the church. So it's a, it's a great call. And um, so it's really important, the, the lay members of the faithful. And so you, there's this quote here is from Pius XII in 1946. So this is a while ago, but it's just, it's included in the catechism. Lay believers are in the front line of church life. For them, the church is the animating principle of human society. Therefore, they in particular ought to have an ever clear consciousness, not only of belonging to the church, but of being the church. That is to say, the community of the faithful on earth, under the leadership of the Pope, the common head, and of the bishops in communion with them. They are the church. And so sometimes we think of the church as something in Rome or something that's just the parish or the priest, but actually we, right? None of them like I am the church, but we gathered together as Christ's field, as Christ's body, as a temple animated the Holy Spirit are the church. And you think about this, this line at the start, lay believers are in the front line of church life. About that in the 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 day-to-day -day interactions with people who aren't part of the church, I don't have that many interactions with that. My day-to-day -day life is with all of you, uh, but to actually go out and to draw people in, that that's actually you're better situated for that than I am. So that puts you on the on the the front lines, right? Like. My interaction with people who aren't Catholic is mostly at the grocery store, and they kind of like give me one of these as they look at my dress. Um, and I like to say, my eyes are up here. Um, that's a terrible joke. <laughs> uh. All right, so, and then lastly from the catechism, the right and duty to work so that the divine message of salvation may be known and accepted this duty is more pressing when it is only through them that men can hear the gospel and know Christ. So I think maybe two things that, um, that kind of developed over these last few decades is the lady, a, a greater dignity, a greater importance, but with that comes a greater responsibility, comes a greater sense of mission and a greater sense of purpose, right? When you have this identity as important, as not just like members of the church as if like I've got my Catholic card, I'm going to punch my ticket, but actually being co-workers in the Lord's vineyard, there's a greater dignity, but also a greater responsibility to be part of that uh, salvation of the world and not just to, to say like, okay, you do that, or you, or you know, like it's the priest's role or the nun's role to do that. It's actually, we are the church. So this is all of our roles to help the salvation and the, the sanctification of the world. So, so it gives us a greater, gives a greater dignity, but also that greater sense of purpose, of responsibility. So I believe that is the church. So um, a great mystery. You know, we talk about these mysteries of the faith. Of course, one that you can say a ton about, but one you could never fully, fully exhaust. So 
Um, the church is a great gift to, for salvation. It's got plenty of brokenness because we're in it and we are all, you know, striving for holiness. So, any questions, comments? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so within, within a diocese, then, there's, there's deaneries that are broken down, like geographical areas. Um, yeah, so, and then there's a dean, a priest, who's kind of responsible for that. Um, yeah, I didn't include those, because on a day-to-day -day, uh, interaction, even in my life, the deanery doesn't, you know, sometimes that's how communication is filtered down, but there are deaneries. So let's say, hypothetically, I've got a, I've got a, a Catholic, and, a, uh, and an unbaptized person who are getting married, I have to get permission from the archbishop. But let's just say I'm a little like behind or uh, I forget, and Saturday morning I haven't gotten that permission, and so their marriage wouldn't be valid unless I get the permission. I can call the dean, and the dean could give emergency permission for that. So that's Father Steve Schaup. Father Steve Schaup, yeah. The dean of, this, or uh, of our, yeah. Because he did Right, right. So a lot of times they'll, they'll kind of lead uh, funerals for priests that die in the deanery. And uh, confirmation, so actually Father Schaup is doing confirmation next year. So, um, yeah. That looks like you got a follow-up question. No. No? Okay. Just thinking. Any other questions? All right, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ability to be part of your family. We thank you for the people that you gather around us. And we ask that you may always give us a great understanding and a great um, realization of our identity as your church under your fatherly care. As we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Next week, Mary and the Saints.